0: Our scripture today is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. It's on page 952 in the Pew Bible. God has exalted his name above all things and his word above all things. So let's stand in honor of that. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe." things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord.
1: Father, as we continue to worship, we're here to seek your help. In your favor, in your grace. We have read your word, we have sung your word, we have prayed, we have rejoiced in your grace and in your promises, and so now we pray that you would open up our minds and hearts to what this passage has for us through your spirit this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Brian and Mark, our senior pastor is away this week on a break. So we're gonna continue our series as you can tell in 1 Corinthians. And uh, as I was thinking about and studying this passage this week, uh, the points that Paul makes here reminded me of something that some people think is strange about me and they're probably right. And it's one of those things that when you go to those icebreaker events or you have to have an icebreaker in a conversation or a small group and people might say, what's something about you that you like that no one else likes? And my answer is, I like funerals. Now don't get me wrong, it's not that I'm happy that someone's died and that people are sad, and it's not that I'm morbid and Halloween is my favorite holiday. It's not, it's not like that at all. I don't like funerals like I like roller coasters or eating something amazing. I like funerals because they're clarifying and I leave there reminded of what matters in life, what I need to keep in front of me. Think about it. If you go to a funeral for someone who did not live life well, by whatever measure you wanna make that, uh, that. Uh, Um, assessment, that they did not live life well. Maybe it was someone who was proud of their work and would pay any price to be successful at it, even their character or their family or their reputation. Maybe it was someone who always trusted in their own understanding. They always knew what was right. They always pushed everybody over in order to make their point. And you know what happens at the end of life for those dear folks their relationships are weak at best. Or maybe it was someone who always had to have everything under control. And over the course of their life, no one has control over what happens and they wind up being bitter and distressed. And what do those funerals do for someone who did not live life well? They make you say, I don't wanna be like that. I want to remember what matters. I wanna have a funeral like we see when we go to the funeral for someone who did live life well, because you aren't celebrating how much money they had and you aren't celebrating someone who put their work above all else. What you're doing is you're reminded of the power of a beautiful life that's offered up in love to God and people. You're reminded of what a life like that can be and do. In this world, You see on display the power of a life not built on trusting the wrong things, but the right things, not trusting in power or control or success or being right, but in a loving God greater than us who's working to restore the relationships he had with his people and with his creation. But I want to suggest this morning that we not wait to go to a funeral to ask those questions. Because this passage puts them front and center before us this morning. Questions about what are you putting your trust in? Where is your confidence as you go through this coming week? And that's what Paul's getting at at the end there in verse 31 when he uses the word boast. Because what are the things you boast about? They're the things you have confidence in. They're the things you think are worthy and significant and must be attained and must be kept. So that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to first ask, what do you boast in? And secondly, then what should you boast in? So first, let's ask, what do you boast in? Now, often when you speak or you write, you put the main point at the end, And that's what Paul does here. So to explain this passage, I wanna start at the end. And what I said about verse 31, where he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what he's been driving at in this last half of chapter one, is what do you boast in? He's saying it all comes down to this. Don't boast in the wrong things, boast in the right thing, boast in the Lord. So what does he mean by boasting? What does he mean by boasting? Well, you know what it is to boast or to brag, to make sure that you talk about the things that you're proud of, the things that you think you've done well, the things you've accomplished, the things you're satisfied in, your possessions, your abilities. That's what it means to boast. But I think Paul wants us to think about boasting for more than just the words that we say, but I think he wants us to think about why we boast. Why do we boast? Because why does the man or woman who's just accomplished a great thing in the business world have to tell you about it? Why do they have to tell you how happy their employees are? Why does the parent have to find subtle ways to mention all the accomplishments of their children whenever they can in a conversation? I knew someone one time whose child I had never met was off at college. And they often mentioned this dear son of theirs. And they would say, I've told you about him before. And they had, they told me about him a lot. He goes to, and they would always pause. And you could almost audibly say, wait for it. He goes to Princeton yes, you told me about him and you pause every time before you say the name of his school for that dramatic effect. They had to boast or brag about their son going to Princeton. Why do we need to let others know about the good decisions that we've made that brought so much stability and prosperity to our lives? Or why do we maybe not say them out loud, but we want to? Maybe that's you. Maybe you catch yourself because you know it's not going to look good to boast or brag, but you find yourself, ah, this would be the time. I wish I could bring this up. I wish I could talk about that. Why do we do it? Because like we said, we boast in the things that we think are worthy, the things that give us worth, the things that give us significance or security, the things that give us dignity. These are the things we boast about. The things we look to to build our worth on are the things we trust. And the things we trust are the things we boast about. So that is work backwards from your boasting to find where your faith is. The things that you boast or brag about or you want to boast or brag about but don't, those are the things you put your trust in for your worth and your significance. That is what you put your faith in. What you boast about is what you put your faith in. And that's why Paul says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Don't boast in the wrong thing. It's not just the boasting, it's where your confidence is, is why you boast about it. Because Paul's writing, as we talked about the last few weeks to this church in Corinth that he had started, he had planted this church, he had pastored this church, he had spent more than a year there, maybe two years there. He knew these people well. And because they had come to faith, that means they had put their faith in Jesus Christ. That is where they had put their trust. That is where they should be finding their worth and significance. But as they continue to go forward in their lives, they're pushed by the society to place their confidence and worth back in the things the society said was worthwhile. The things that the society said gave them confidence or their their security. And what was it for them? Well, you don't have to know the ancient Greeks very well to know that they valued their philosophy they thought a lot about their wisdom. They thought highly of all of the ways they had thought carefully about the world and about our place in it and about what gave people dignity and respect. And so much did they think about it that it was as if they sat on the lofty heights of their philosophy with their arms crossed, looking down at the barbarians out there who did not understand the world in its complexity, the way they had come to understand the world through their philosophy and speculation. Acts 17 says that the people of Athens, the nearby Greek city, spent all their time doing nothing but listening to and talking about the latest ideas. And I don't think Corinth was that different. The, the society around this church valued philosophy and thinking and education. And not only that, they valued the ability to speak publicly about it. As a matter of fact, that's what they would do for fun lecturers would go around to all these cities in charge of fee to enlighten and entertain you about the latest ideas and philosophy. And so they would have their favorite speakers and entertainers that would come in and give these phenomenal lectures about all the latest ideas and philosophy. And that's what they were being pushed back into it. That's why Paul's talking about wisdom and folly. They had come to boast in and have confidence in their knowledge and their understanding the way they could see the world. Now that's not necessarily our temptation, is it, to brag about your knowledge of philosophy? Maybe you had to take a philosophy class in college and you don't remember a thing about it and you're not anxious to tell everybody what you know about Plato or Socrates or any of those other folks who said things you can't remember what they said. But there are things that people in Corinth were tempted to place their confidence in and brag about that are the same as what we're tempted to place our confidence in and brag about. And we can see it from this quote here in verse 31. Paul's not just making this up, let the one who boasts boast about the Lord. He's quoting Jeremiah chapter nine, verses 23 and 24. And you can see it on the screen there. It ends with this quote from Paul, but it starts this way. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his strength, or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. The people of Corinth that Paul was writing to, just like you and just like me, were tempted to boast, place their confidence in their wisdom in their strength, and in their riches. It's what Paul talks about in verse 26, when he says that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were of noble birth or rich. This verse was soaking in Paul's mind. He was speaking out of it, his heart was there. So we have to ask ourselves, in what ways do we boast in our wisdom, our strength, our riches? Like we said, you probably don't boast in your philosophy, But it is easy to place your confidence in what you think you know, and look down on others who don't see the world the way you do, who don't have it all figured out. And maybe you don't think about that in Greek philosophy terms, but you can think, man, if these people would just get it, if they would just get how the world works, if they would just get how people works, if they would just get how government works, if they would just get how the economy works, if they would just get it, If they knew what I knew, no, then they would get it. We place our confidence and our trust in what we know. When it comes to boasting or trusting in our strength or our riches, we only have to look at how did you respond to the news about that virus this week? And who knows, is it a big deal? I don't know. Is it a small deal? We, We don't know, none of us know. But did you find yourself this week checking your 401k as the markets dove? Did you find your heart sinking along with the market? (laughs) Were you trusting in riches? The news about what may or may not come over the next few months with a virus can cause us to have an opportunity to say, is my trust in my riches, in my wealth? Or is it in my strength? Because who knows? Maybe this summer is gonna look very different than what you thought. I'm not trying to scare anybody, I don't even know. I don't know a thing about what this virus is going to do. But it's possible that it changes your travel plans, it's possible that it changes whatever about your summer. And are you finding your heart tensing up about that? Because you're going to lose control over the plans you've made? And do you know what that means? You're trusting in your strength, as Jeremiah would put it. You're trusting in the fact that you're in control. And when suddenly something comes up that says you might not be in control, not even that you aren't, but just you might not be, it can feel for some of us like our foundation is shaken. And suddenly everything is up in the air. So that's one way to say, what do you trust in? Maybe it's not the philosophy and wisdom of the Greeks, but... Like the people of Corinth, we can be tempted and we do place our trust in our wisdom, our knowledge, our strength, our riches, and we can boast or brag in those things. How else can you discover what you boast about? And it's very important that we do discover it, whether it's an audible boast or just an internal boast or brag. How can you discover it? Well, I mean, one way is pretty obvious, isn't it? You can just listen to the things you brag about. That's the biggest clue, is if it is audible and out loud, what are the things that you're boasting and bragging about? Or you can look to those times you get defensive. Because you don't get defensive over everything, but just some things. Why do you get defensive over those things and not other things? It's because those are places you put your trust and your confidence, your worth, your security, and your significance. There's another way to look at it, and it's to work backwards. You boast about the things you think are your glory and the opposite of glory is shame. So you can think to yourself and ask yourself, what would it be that if I lost it, I would be ashamed? If something didn't happen, I would feel a sense of shame and embarrassment. Maybe if your professional goals didn't happen and you finished your life with a job that didn't go to the places you hoped, would you feel shame over that? What if people just forgot about you and didn't notice you? Would you feel shame over that? If you do, that's proof that your heart's placing confidence in being interesting and known and remembered. What if you finished life less well off than your parents did? Would you feel shame? Then your confidence is in riches and money. And it's so important to know what we boast in because we have to know if that thing we boast about, place our confidence in, will hold the weight of what we place on it. Will it hold the weight of our life? Will it hold the weight and support all of these things that we place upon it? Our hopes, our dreams, our reputation. I brought a little visual aid for you this morning to show you what I mean. Some of you saw me walking in with it. It's these little tulips here. Someone asked if I was gonna make a theology joke and I'm not. If you don't get that joke, don't worry about it. So I got these tulips, got them at the store. I got my receipt so I can remember how much I paid for them. $2.10. Half off with my card. That was pretty good. They're pretty nice, right? Those are nice flowers. I like a good tulip. There's some Dutch on my wife's side of the family, so we can appreciate that. Now, what if I made you an offer And I said, you like these tulips? Great. How about you trade me your house for them? You're not going to do it. Okay, not your house. Let me go even bigger. How about your 401k? How about everything you have for these flowers? It's crazy, right? You're not going to place your confidence in tulips to do it. But if you know anything about the history of the markets, one of the first Crazes there were was a tulip craze in the 1630s in Holland. And they became very popular, did these tulips with the upper classes? And so the prices began to rise. And as prices began to rise, people began to make money. And as people made money, they invested more in tulips so they could make more money. And the popularity of tulips continued to rise. And sometimes, yes, it's true, for a rare variety of a tulip, which I could crush in my hand, people would buy these for the value of a house or they would trade their entire estate for a lot of a rare variety of a tulip. It was a bubble and you don't have to even know what beanie babies were to know what happened next. Some of you aren't old enough to get that joke. Even if you don't know these beanie babies, you know what happened next. The bubble burst and all that people had put into tulips was wiped out. Their confidence in tulips was not rewarded. And so we have to know what do we place our confidence in because we have to know, will it support it? Is it just as fragile as a tulip? And if it's wisdom, if it's what you know, yes, it's as fragile as a tulip because your knowledge is far more limited than you realize. If it's your strength, yes, it's nothing but a fragile flower because you're not in control. And if it's your riches that you place your confidence in, yes, it is nothing greater than a fragile flower because it can be wiped out with a new story in the morning. All these things that we boast and brag about can't support the weight. And so we go next to our second question, what should we boast in? What should we boast in? If we can't boast, in these things that we do, what should we boast in? And Paul makes it very clear in the passage that we read that we should boast in the wisdom and power of the cross. We should boast in the wisdom and power of the cross. Great, got it? That was easy. Let's all just go home. Except it's not that easy, is it? We can say that and we can even know it deep in our bones, but it's hard. And it's hard because the world looks at the wisdom of the cross and says, that's not wisdom, That's foolishness. The world looks at the power of the cross and says, that's not power, that's weakness. I don't need that. And so it's hard for us to boast in the cross because everything around us says it's not wise, it's not powerful. And that's what Paul says um, when he describes the Greeks to us. He says to the cross, to the Greeks, it wasn't wisdom, but it was folly. And what was folly to them? Well, if you go back to the Greek that Paul wrote in and you look at the word for folly, it's the word in Greek, moron. And that's not an English translation, that's the Greek word. And just to give you a little Greek lesson, if you wanna know what moron meant back then, look up moron in your English dictionary now and that's what it meant. When Paul says to the Greeks, it wasn't wisdom, but it was folly, he's saying the Greeks look at this stuff about Jesus on the cross and say, that's for morons. That's for people who are idiots. They don't get it at all. Let me show you by putting up this picture this morning. Can you see that pretty well even in the back? This was found in 1857 in a Roman ruin, probably from about the year 200 or maybe earlier. And it was found in a ruin that housed, it was like a dorm for young boys who served in the palace. And this is where they housed all the little page boys. And apparently one of these page boys was a Christian and apparently others there in the dorm mocked him for it. Because I don't know if you can see it, but the words there in Greek say, Alex worships his God. And I assume that's Alex there. You see him there with his hand raised, I assume in worship. And what's he worshiping? He's worshiping a figure on a cross. And what's on the head of that figure? It's a donkey's head. This is what they thought about Alex and his worship. They said, this is for morons. This is folly. This is worshiping someone with the head of an ass. That's what these people, the Greeks thought about this. They said, it's insane to worship a God who would become a man. We want to be free of this flesh so we can be like the gods. It's crazy to worship a crucified criminal It is the height of folly to think that there could be a way of salvation that did not accord with their high and lofty philosophy. So that was the Greeks. Now, to the Jews, it wasn't just that it was nonsensical, it was offensive. Paul says it was a stumbling block to the Jews because it wasn't just that they thought the Messiah was going to come and establish an an earthly kingdom, but they said, they read in the Old Testament that everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And they say, You're telling me the Messiah hung on a tree? You're telling me the Messiah was cursed. I'm offended. Now, that's the kind of language we get in our day and age because it drips off our uh, lips and fingertips all the time. I'm offended. I'm offended. I'm outraged. Well, that's how the Jews felt. You're telling me that our Messiah was cursed. I'm offended by that. That is not how God works is what they would have said. That is not the power of God. They would say that's weakness. So for both the Jews and the Greeks, it was more than hard to boast in the cross of Christ. It was more than hard to boast in the gospel, but for different reasons. The Greeks for reasons of their philosophy, the Jews for reasons of what their preconceived notions of what the Messiah was going to do. So we have to ask, if it challenged the Jews and Greeks in different places, does it also challenge every society in different places? And it does. It challenge each society in different times and places in different ways. Where does the gospel challenge our society? Well, what do you and I hear is the most holy and righteous thing that we can do? What is the best thing someone could do? And the answer comes back time and again, the best thing is to be true to yourself. That's the most holy thing somebody could do. Now, so then the message of Jesus, who must be crucified on a cross to save us and to satisfy the wrath of God comes along and meets the idea of you must be true to yourself. And someone with that idea that says the best thing you can do is be true to yourself is gonna hear about the cross and say, that makes no sense. I don't need a cross, I need to look inside myself. I need to look inside myself for my salvation. That's where, among many places, the cross can be offensive to our society and seem like it's something for morons. So the cross comes and challenges different societies in different ways at different times and it can make us want to slink back, to give up, to retreat, to not be those who look foolish, to not be those who look like they don't know what everybody else knows. But we don't shrink back because of what Paul says, that the cross is true wisdom and it's real power So it's true that to the world in different ways and different places at different times, the cross is going to seem foolish, but think about it with me for a moment. We We can't deny that there's something radically wrong with mankind. I don't care what your base level view of mankind is, whether he's basically good or bad, you have to say there's really something wrong here because at an individual level, at a societal level, it seems like mankind is his own worst enemy. He's the one who can't get out of his own way. And if that's the case, we would expect every society's beliefs to be challenged at some point by a God who is outside and above it all. If there's a God outside and above it all, then he would have to challenge every society in a different way, depending on what that society's beliefs were. And that's why Paul says in verse 21 that it was actually God's wisdom to work in this way. If God showed up and said, hey, guess what? You're absolutely right about everything. Good job. Y'all had it figured out. You were the height of human civilization. Everybody else before you got it wrong, you finally arrived in your day and age and you got it all right. Then we would look at him and go, huh, we don't need God. But it was God's wisdom, it says in verse 21, to go against the grain of human wisdom to show us that we need him, to show us not that he humbles himself before us, but that we humble ourselves before him. And it's not just that the gospel is a clever set of ideas or it's a list of teachings like the philosophy of the Greeks. Paul says it's more than that. He says the gospel is power. The gospel is the power of God. If you look back with me at verse 18, if you listen closely he says for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved we would expect him now to say the wisdom of god because he just said folly but he says it's the it's folly to those who are perishing but it's power to those who are being saved it's not just a set of ideas the gospel is a force and what does that power look like it looks like jesus dying on a tree That's what God's power looks like. It looks like the height of defeat. It looks like Christ crucified. We wanted him to come in power, but he came in weakness. He came as a man, blowing all the circuits of the Greeks. He came as a man with nothing, we read in the Old Testament, to attract us to him. You would have passed him on the street and not known him apart from any other working class person of the day. And he just humble himself by becoming a man. He humbled himself to the point of death, even to death on a cross, to the point of giving everything up. Jesus' victory was him losing his friends. Jesus' victory was him losing his reputation. His victory was him losing his life. His victory was him losing his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound like victory to you? But it is, because he paid the price for all of us to redeem us, as he says in verse 30, that we might have righteousness, that we might be set apart, sanctification, that we might be redeemed. It's God's subversive wisdom and power that undoes all of our preconceived ideas about what he should do and what he should be like. And just to take that even further, this isn't something we seize in power. As one man said, this isn't something we achieve. This is only something we receive. That's why Paul says it's by faith. By faith means you surrender and you receive what someone else has done. The wisdom and power of the world says you get it, you grab for it, you do it. Faith says you can't. God did and we receive it from him. So that's the, or because of the subversive, then wisdom and power of the cross. You see that we can boast in it. You see that we can trust in it. That that is the solid place to build our confidence to boast in the Lord, even if it makes no sense to the world around us. And we need to know that's just what our city needs for the whole of this year, as you've heard, we're gonna be focusing on for this city. And what does it mean for Village 7 to be for this place that God has chosen to place us all in? What our city needs most is for us to have such joy in the cross of Christ that it changes us. And it changes us in several ways. One, that it keeps us humble. Our neighbors in our city need people who boast in the cross such that they are humble. Because here's the weird thing, and it's happened to all of us who've walked with the Lord for very long. We understand by God's grace, oh, God's wisdom and power are different. Christ being crucified is the answer to what's wrong in the world. And that's not something I do, that's something he did. And we come to understand that by grace through faith, and then we get self-righteous about it. (laughs) It's completely upside down. It's completely backwards. It should keep us humble, humble to the place where we approach our friends and neighbors, not as why can't you people get it? What's wrong with you in the world? It's us versus them, but it changes us so that if God has revealed these things to us, may he be merciful through us also to reveal it to our neighbors, to this city. It also needs to change us in such a way that we care about the place God has placed us and we care about the people in it. We care about our neighbors. Have you noticed how Paul knew his audience? He knew their temptations. He knew their struggles. He knew their hopes, their fears, their dreams. If you read through Acts, every time he preached the gospel to a different kind of group, he didn't alter the message, but he spoke it in a way that they could understand. That made sense, which is just what Jesus did as he came in the incarnation to us. So when he preaches the gospel to religious people, he emphasizes a certain thing. When he preaches the gospel to those with no religious background or to those in Athens, for instance, he preaches it in a different way. And what I wanna say is, are you changed enough by the gospel so that you care enough about your neighbors to know them, to know what they boast about, to know what they think gives them worth, And then do you know them well enough and care enough about them to say, okay, what's the bridge here to the gospel? If this is where they struggle with sin, what's the bridge to the gospel for them? And there will be times, yes, where you look foolish and I look foolish to the world, to your neighbors. But are we changed enough by the gospel to love them enough to risk looking foolish, to risk losing something in their eyes? So Paul this morning wants to focus us on, where's your confidence? Is it on something that'll last or not? Place your confidence in the Lord. Place it in Christ crucified, the wisdom and power of God, such that you love your neighbors enough to know them, to share with them, to serve them. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are grateful to you this morning for what we've read, for what we've heard because it's true. Lord, we thank you that your wisdom and power are subversive, that it's not what we expect, that we can't look at what you say and what you do and say, oh yeah, that's how I would have done it. But we thank you that you are greater, wiser, more powerful than us. We thank you that to the world, your wisdom looks foolish and that it was your wisdom to do it that way. We thank you that the gospel is power and that you've shared that power with us given it to us. We pray that it would continue to change us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.